Welcome to Seismic Airwaves, a podcast about disasters centered on earthquakes based in Portland, Oregon. I'm your host, Sabina Roan. My name is Walida Imarisha, and I'm an organizer, an educator, and a public scholar. I spoke with Walida on April 23rd, 2020. George Floyd was still alive. A lot has transpired between then and when this is airing, but two pandemics were very much happening when I spoke with Walida, coronavirus and white supremacy. Before we hear from Walida, I want to share a bit about my motivation for starting this podcast and what I'm trying to do here, because the topics of earthquake preparedness, race, and radical imagination are not often seen in the same place. My ideas for Seismic Airwaves trace back a few years to a project I did with fellow graduate student Jay Cromwell, advised by Dr. Marisa Zapata at Portland State University. We looked at equity in emergency management. With not much more than the words as a title, we attracted a huge audience to a panel discussion in a series that's normally lucky to get about 15 attendees. That day, well over 100 people spilled out into the hallway from the largest room we could reserve. Attending were staff from government agencies, community members and advocates, academics, and a number of uniformed first responders from fire bureaus and other groups with their radios murmuring as a background noise. I knew that I thought these topics were extremely important and urgent, but seeing that level of turnout and the many people who stayed and asked Jay and I for more information, a listserv, a calendar with similar events, anything, brought home to me how many people are so hungry for connecting with others, discussing, and charting courses to make things better. We know natural hazards are a part of living on Earth. We know climate change is increasing, extreme weather, and other disruptions. And we know the systems we have in place are not set up to serve people in equitable or even the most efficient ways. I'm still figuring out how to articulate all this, but I want to keep bringing people together to engage with new ideas in these areas, along with more traditional preparedness practices related to earthquakes, because that's a big looming risk here in the Pacific Northwest. That's a short story of how Seismic Airwaves was born. With this episode, we're going upstream beyond the technical to think about how disasters and crises are conceptualized in society. I first contacted Walida and Marisha because I experienced the pandemic having a heavy air of the surreal, and it seemed to me like we were living in a setting for sci-fi. Life as we know it literally stopping, no cars on the road at rush hour, stores running out of toilet paper and everything else. Walida and I ended up talking about so much more. What visioning a future means in a society where power is held unequally, and what crises mean in this context. I wonder if you thought it was odd to hear I was eager to have your voice on a podcast about disasters, but breaking it down to basics the way I see it, disasters equal natural hazards plus humans. And I think there's a lot of aspects like narrative definition and creating meaning and disruption of normalcy that your work can lend its practice to better understanding. Your work weaves together many prongs, and I've really been looking forward to hearing how you see the dynamics which you address apply to disasters and how things are playing out 
at the present moment with the COVID-19 pandemic. You have made such important contributions furthering the spaces of sci-fi, Afrofuturism, and social justice. And in fact, you coined the term visionary fiction. Can you describe what visionary fiction in is and why you found this area to be worthy to dedicate so much energy to? Yeah, I started using the term visionary fiction to talk about fantastical art that helps us to understand current power dynamics and allows us to imagine new ways to build the just futures that we want. To me, visionary fiction is intimately and intricately connected with community organizing and uh, radical liberation movements. I've always been a science fiction nerd and a fantasy nerd. I've loved fantastical writing my entire life. And uh, I came to a place where I saw that um, not only do fantastical writings like science fiction uh, work well with community organizing, they are actually, they need one another. Uh, community organizing needs radical spaces like science fiction that allow us to imagine beyond what we're told is possible. And science fiction needs spaces of visionary imagination and visionary organizing like liberation movements to push it forward and to allow it to imagine something truly different. Because part of the reason I started using the term visionary fiction is a lot of mainstream science fiction just replicates the status quo. It's not going to help us to build new just worlds because it just tells the same stories in the same power dynamics we've heard again and again. So I believe visionary fiction is something that can help us to imagine new ways of building different futures and different worlds, which we always need, but we desperately need right now. In a recent conversation with Angela Glover Blackwell, you were talking about the superpowers you envisioned yourself having as a child, and now you're reflection on how you've taken that way of seeing and interacting with the world with you into your adult life. And you said the past is with us, the future is with us, and we just have to engage with them. I'm not sure if I'm using the right, as someone who's not in the creative um, literature world, I don't know if I'm using the right terminology to mean what I'm thinking about, but um, I'm really interested in this idea of creating narratives. I'm interested in what lessons from your work about creating narratives can be applied to disasters, if that makes sense. Does that terminology, like, does that make sense with the terminology that I'm using? I think so. I mean, I think the thing about narrative is everything around us is a story. It, because the reality is what happens is we get input, we get information, we get uh, observations, and then we organize it by telling a story. That is the basis of all society, of all knowledge, um, is input sort of raw data. And then how do we interpret or extrapolate that when we're talking about our lives, our histories, our cultures, those are stories that we're telling that help us make sense of the, the input that we're getting. And so I think, you know, the stories we tell ourselves are incredibly important. And 
you know, whose eyes we're seeing through in those stories is incredibly important, which is a huge part of my work around visionary fiction is centering uh, those folks who have been marginalized, who are oppressed, who sit at the intersections of identities and oppressions. Because when that happens, when we engage with the world through their stories, their narratives, it fundamentally changes how we view issues, how we view outcomes, what we see as a quote unquote happy ending, how we uh, imagine the path forward. And so I think the stories we tell each other and tell ourselves are incredibly important. They are the foundation for, for our society. And the, that cultural shift is an incredibly important one when we're talking about change. Change doesn't just happen at the, at the legislative level. It's important to note, um, you know, author and thinker Jeff Chang talks about sort of legislative and policy shifts as actually the last part of social change, that a cultural shift is fundamental to opening up space to allow these other long-term structural changes to happen. And a huge part of how cultural shifts uh, come about is by shifting the stories that are being told, shifting the voices that we are centering and listening to, changing the ways that we see perspective. And so, you know, I think that that narrative is incredibly important again at any time, but especially at uh, times of acute crisis and acute change. I'm still like working through my own um, conceptualization of this, but the existence of disasters, how our society, like natural has, like if we pull apart natural hazards and humans as the components that create a disaster, if no one's around, if no humans are around in the location where a tornado hits, then we don't call that a disaster if it's not affecting people. So how we create these narratives around what's a disaster, when does it become something worthy of that that title, and when is that part of our just base normalcy or something, like the rhetoric that's going on right now of human lives for the sake of the economy. The economy is something that is worthy of sacrificing these lives for. Um, what is that saying about the way we organize society? I mean, I think it speaks to your earlier question about the power of narrative. The economy is, a, it's a myth. It's, a, it's a, a made up story that we've all collectively agreed to and agreed to structure our lives and very existence around. If that story changes, then the economy changes drastically. It goes away or is replaced by something else entirely. Human lives don't go away. The environment doesn't go away if we try to tell a different story. So, you know, I think that that is incredibly important to recognize. And to me, this is part of the reasons that visionary fiction is so important because we have been trained to not be able to imagine anything outside of this existing system. This existing system that isn't in and of itself is a disaster. Um, and I think that that piece is really important that you're talking about what gets categorized as a disaster. As you're saying, it has to first affect humans, which is about the, the hierarchy of life on this planet that we engage in under white supremacist capitalism. 
Um, but it also doesn't see the disasters that are happening every single day, the disasters that have combined together to create an incredibly disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on communities of color, on immigrant communities, on poor communities, on marginalized communities. The reality is, is that folks of color in the United States and globally have been living disasters and apocalypses for centuries. It only gets categorized as a disaster when it begins to affect uh, <clears throat> white people, white structures. Um, and I think that that's important, again, to talk about shifting the narrative of, of how we talk about disasters, how we talk about what is possible. Uh, science fiction fantasy writer Ursula K. Le Guin had an amazing quote where she said, you know, we live under capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Any power created by humans can be changed by humans. But first we have to be able to imagine that something else is possible. We have to be, imagine that this is not a fundamental given of our universe like gravity. Capitalism is not gravity. Capitalism is not an inescapable force that we have no control over. Capitalism is a system created by humans fairly recently in human history and can fundamentally be changed overnight into something else as we've seen historically. And so I think, again, we need spaces of imagination that allow us to question everything we've been told is unquestionable. Because to me, that's the only way we begin to challenge this false dichotomy that white supremacist imperialist capitalism has given us that says either it's the economy and your jobs or it's people. The reality is that is a, that is a story. That is a terrible story. If I was reading it in a book, I would throw it across the room. We should do the same thing in real life. When I first heard you speak a few years ago, I was struck by how you traced what the Portland of today owes to past legacies and how behind the scenes forces have actively shaped the things taking place in daily life today, such as the legacies of racism and structural racism. Can you share your insights into how historical contexts in Oregon and beyond play into the current reality? And you spoke to this a little bit um, before, but how are we starting to see these dynamics on a larger level or on a local level play out in the pandemic situation? I don't think that we can understand at all where we are without understanding history. I think that it's important to note history is not a linear progression towards greatness, as we've been told in Eurocentric studies of history. It is at best a spiral that we can say, look down and say, we've been here before, and how can we use that information to make different choices to have different outcomes? But the reality is, is that structurally, we usually don't have those conversations, and so we just end up going in circles. So I, you know, I think the history of, of Oregon, of Portland, of the Northwest, of, of the United States, is one deeply rooted in and steeped in white supremacy, and that is why we see the huge racial disparities in every category that we see, um, but especially talking about in the case of COVID-19. These are, these are not results that come from 
the black community not doing the best thing to take care of itself as being framed. Oftentimes when we talk about racial disparities, the ways that you know, white liberals talk about it is a way that further pathologizes black communities, black families, black people saying, you know, these disparities exist because black folks don't take care of themselves um, either because they don't know how or they don't have the resources. The reality is black folks have a much higher rate of infection for COVID-19, of death at the you know, hands of COVID-19 because of institutional racism that has been put into place and reinforce generation after generation after generation. The foundation of Oregon itself is as a racist white utopia. The idea of this place was that white people would come and build the sort of white society they had dreamed of building away from people of color. And that meant stealing 2.5 million acres of indigenous land to build the Northwest on, it, and giving it away for free to white folks through the Oregon Donation Act of uh, 1850. It meant including black exclusion laws, three of them, uh, the first passed for the Oregon Territory and then for uh, Oregon the state. Um, and the first black exclusion law included the lash law that said black people would be publicly tortured but through whipping until they left. Those are all brutal ways of reinforcing the notion that this place is for white people. And that was built into the foundations of the institutions that shape all of our lives and continues to function in that same way to this day. And so when we talk about the impact of COVID-19 and the current global pandemic in Portland, we look at racial disparities and see that Black folks are uh, have a much higher unemployment rate in the best of times, almost double in Oregon, that Black folks have a lower rate of being insured for health uh, care, that the Black population of Portland is almost 50%, 50%, almost 50% of homeless people in Portland are Black. And, you know, these statistics go on and on, but they show the ways that institutional racism has been built into the foundations of the systems that shape our lives and has replicated and reinforced itself to get to this point. So we cannot change that through generalized surface reforms. We have to do deep institutional work to change the foundations of these institutions. And some of these institutions will have to be completely dismantled done away with and replaced by something utterly different, which again is why we need imaginative spaces to be able to imagine something different than what we have. That's a really good segue to the next point I wanted to ask you of, there's this conceptualization that disasters present a disruption of business as usual cycles and an opening for redistribution of priorities and power. And in my own readings of sci-fi and all the related genres, I feel like it's kind of common to use disaster as a jumping point. And also um, there's this quote from Octavia Butler about the phoenix and needing for everything to catch on flames before there's an opportunity for rebirth. Could you share your thoughts on these perspectives? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most important things is recognizing that in moments of crisis, whatever they are, 
things will change. There will be no return to the way things were exactly. Um, and, you know, I think for, you know, folks who believe in radical movements and, and liberated futures, we don't think there should be a return because the way things were was the problem that got us here. But the reality is society will change and is changing after this. It will change one way or, or another. And so those, these moments are moments where we, we absolutely need imaginative spaces. I think we're, you know, we're often told that in moments of crisis, those of us who are trying to make change, we have to dream smaller because there's so much in flux that we can't ask for too much. There's so much emphasis on being realistic, especially in moments of crisis, um, because, because it is a moment that is uh, even more life or death than every day. But I absolutely believe those are the moments where we, we need to dream as big as possible. These are the moments where we need to be utterly unrealistic in our dreams, because that's the only way we're going to get real substantive social change. Otherwise, we're going to just get a, a slightly reformed version of what we had before at best. Um, but these are the moments where everything is going to change and we need to think about um, what, is, what is the biggest reimagining we can think of collectively to build those new just futures and then how do we, how do we begin to, to take the steps towards that? How are these spaces where imagination and thinking the big thoughts, where are those flourishing right now? And what are the, what is helping people get to that bold jumps of thought? I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of, of movement from, you know, from uh, communities who've been holding these radical visions and radical organizing for a long time. We're seeing that moving towards the center. We're seeing conversations seriously about, you know, universal health care, which is not something that was really, it was, it has been moving towards the center, but the conversations, you know, going, if you go back two or three months, even, <laughs> were radically different about the notion of universal health care than is being had in the mainstream. The, the same is true for a universal basic income. Folks have been nurturing that in radical communities, in communities rooted in oppressed spaces and saying, this is something we need to have. This has been a call for, for generations, for centuries. This is not a new call. And yet suddenly we're hearing it talked about and debated as legitimate in mainstream news and you know, in uh, you know, Congress and in, in these spaces. And so, you know, I think it's important, it's very important for folks to recognize that change comes from the bottom up, not the top down. And part of, you know, controlling history is about controlling the change we think is possible, right? It's the George Orwell quote, he who controls the past controls the future. And so recognizing that when we tell these stories, about how change happens and it happens through presidential you know intervention or through legislation passed through congress or from these uh you know lofty institutional positions we erase the fact that those changes only happened because there was 
such a mass of people organizing at the base that said, you will make this change or things will become completely untenuous for you. It is your choice, but this change will happen one way or another. And that's when people who have, are in positions of power are pushed to act. And then of course they tell the narrative, I did this because I thought it was the right thing to do and I followed my conscience. They followed the fact that their, their power was fundamentally threatened by people saying this will happen or we will make it happen and you will be, you will be irrelevant. And so I think that it's important to root in that reading and understanding of history because it allows us to understand that in this moment, anything and in every moment, anything is possible if we come together collectively and push in the same direction. And, you know, we can't just allow the, the idea that power resides in these elected positions. We have to recognize that true power comes from the people. I mean, we're seeing that economically. We've been told again and again that the value of workers in this country has been completely demoralized, especially as the workforce has become more brown and more female and more immigrant um, and rooted in prison labor. And we've been told again and again, that's not where power lies. But we see after a few weeks of people staying home to take care of themselves and protect one another, the economy is completely tanking, showing that absolutely the economy is rooted in workers. They have the power. That is true for, for all of society. The folks who are on the bottom have the power. And so the question becomes, how do we recognize that? And how do we then use that to push forward the, the dreams and visions that we, we've been having and build on the work that has already been, the foundations that have already been laid? What do you think of the idea that hardship leads to art? I mean, I think everything leads to art. <laughs> so I think that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't like perpetuating the notion that you have to be uh, tortured to be able to make, you know, quality art. But I do think it's important to note that what I see is that oftentimes in moments of crisis or pain individually and collectively, we turn towards art. We turn towards art because it speaks to our soul, to our spirit. It allows us to feel fully the emotional impact of what's happening. And it allows us to nurture hope and even empowerment. And so, you know, personally, when I've had a bad day, I don't necessarily, you know, pull out uh, a, you know, political analysis of, you know, the ways that the prison industrial complex is rooted in slavery, I will put on music or I will put on, you know, a, a short video or I will look at art. Um, so I think it's important that I don't think you need to be in crisis or in hardship to create art. Um, but I think that it's important to note that when we are in crisis, we turn to art. And that's incredibly important to value the role of art as, a, as an emotional expression, but also as a way of knowing the world and ourselves. It is a, art is a pedagogy. It's not just a tool. It's not just an add-on. It is fundamentally a way of engaging with the world. And when we root in that, we actually see ourselves become more fully engage with our emotions, with our own empowerment, and with our own hope and vision for the future.
Has the COVID-19 pandemic brought up any other thoughts or reflections that you want to share? Oh, so many. <laughs> I mean, a lot of my, my work has been around, around prisons and around uh, prison abolition and the notion that prisons, the existence of prisons actually makes us less safe and that we, there are many ways for communities to hold folks who do harm accountable and to focus on healing and wholeness that do not rely on the criminal legal system. I think it's incredibly important that so many of the arguments that are made about prisons making us less safe, they are literally playing out right now in COVID-19. The folks who are incarcerated are, you know, getting COVID-19 at an astronomical rate. Four out of the top 10 uh, infection sites are correctional institutions in this country. These places are literally infecting folks and killing them. And folks are then going to be coming back to the community and you know, being released. And so it's both about protecting larger communities, often folks returning to working class, poor communities of color, um, as well as protecting those folks who are incarcerated. And so there have been you know, so many calls for, for decarceration to let folks out of prison, especially folks who are at risk um, for COVID-19. But those calls for decarceration have been happening for, since the creation of the prison system for well over 100 years, saying prisons make us less safe. We need to get as many people out of prisons and into other spaces as possible. And, you know, taking it a step further with prison abolition, saying prisons then need to be shut down entirely. And so I think it's, you know, it's incredibly important to see the ways that literally the, what folks who believe in prison decarceration and prison abolition have been saying for, for decades, for a century, has come to pass, literally. Um, and that, you know, this is, prisons are literally a sickness that is going to attack those folks who are incarcerated as well as the larger community. And again, disproportionately communities of color, poor communities, um, which is part of the reason why this is not something that is being taken as seriously. This is not something that folks are are acting upon because of the frame of criminalization around black and brown people in this country. And the idea that um, black and brown people individually and our communities collectively don't deserve the same care and the same um, safety as white communities. And that to me is why we need to root in our own imaginations because rooting in a white imagination now, as in every time, is a literal death sentence for communities of color. There's this, like, I, I don't know if it's ironic or just kind of symbolizing what you're talking about, but the fact that people living in incarceration are kind of walled off from the virus until someone who's like a guard comes and brings it to them, to that community. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I, volunteer in multiple prisons around the state 
And, you know, all of these prisons have been closed to all outsiders for well over a month. They're not letting in volunteers, they're not letting in family members. In some cases, they're not letting in lawyers for people, but the guards are coming in and out. They're working all over the prison. They're not taking safety precautions. They're not being given safety precautions. The prisoners are not being given safety precautions. So I think that's absolutely important to recognize that this pandemic and this situation shows that the folks who are bringing it in are the only people going in and out are guards and they are the ones who are bringing this in and you know folks are being denied their basic rights like connection to family and connection to lawyers but that is not protecting them because the system itself is the danger to these people I ask all of the interviewees at the end of our conversation, if you could have everyone listening do one thing, what would it be? I think I would ask everyone listening to get involved in some sort of collection, collective action right now. We are so much stronger when we are together. And in these moments of isolation, uh, you know, literal physical isolation, um, and also feeling, you know, emotional and mental isolation, it's incredibly important to connect with one another and to recognize action is always possible. There are people who are organizing wherever you're at, you can be involved in that. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. There's a, everywhere, you know, across the, the globe, there are mutual aid organizations that have come together to address the needs to say, you know, yes, government should be taking care of people as we give them the, our money to do so. But <clears throat> we also have the power to take care of folks, especially marginalized and oppressed folks within our communities right now. And people are doing that on multiple levels from providing food to, you know, providing uh, prescriptions and, and getting, you know, running errands for folks that are necessary, you know, to connecting pen pals, especially for people who are incarcerated and not getting visitors. That is their only connection to the outside right now is incredibly important to make sure people know they are not alone and forgotten. So whatever your interests, whatever your abilities, whatever your level of engagement, you can get involved in something. And to recognize that doing that to collectively is about us claiming and beginning to build the futures that we want right now. That's what collective action is, is us claiming our right to the future and beginning actively to lay our hands on that future. That's such a exciting note to end on because <laughs> so much of this is very in the space of the imagination and cerebral, but actually there are these things you can take action with today and get involved in making this happen. Mm -hmm. That was Walida Imarisha, organizer and poet, editor of Octavia's Brood, and winner of the 2017 Creative Nonfiction Oregon Book Award for her book Angels with Dirty Faces. It's blowing my mind how things Walida talks about have become much more present in public discourse in a matter of weeks, at least in the media I consume for what it's worth. Something speaking with her brought home for me, for communities of people holding and building visions labeled radical, these ideas can actually be linked to those people's literal survival. Before creating a world or anything really, it needs to first be imagined and conceptualized. 
That's what we do with blueprints drawn up by engineers and architects for dams, for houses, and freeways. Before cooking a meal or starting a new job, we first identify a need and then figure out how to work towards that goal. Before a world where people aren't subjected to threats because they are black becomes a reality, what that world looks like needs to be conceptualized and imagined as possible. I encourage anyone with a stake in the region to look more into Walida's extensive collection of black history in the Pacific Northwest. You can find links in the show notes on our website, seismicairwaves.com. Following and liking Seismic Airwaves on the podcast platform you use, as well as on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, always helps us out. And if you're able to, please consider donating via our website or Patreon. Just search for Seismic Airwaves. Seismic Airwaves is based in Portland, Oregon, on traditional and ancestral homelands of the Multnomah, Cliflamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, Walala Bands of the Chinook, the Tualatin Kalapoya, and many other indigenous nations of the Columbia River. In acknowledging these communities, we honor their sacrifices forced upon them, their legacy, their lives, and their descendants. Our team is Adrian Brown, Ariel Kane, Chad Tucker, Joseph Myers, Sarah Mayer. I'm your host, Sabine Aron, and that's it for this episode of Seismic Airwaves. Until next time, take care.